You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abuel Samad. So we've hit a milestone. We have, this is show 30. 17? Yeah, what? We're halfway through 2017. Well, there's also that, but um, we've been doing this for 30 weeks. So I, we're more than halfway through a year of shows. So that's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> People still seem to like it, so. Yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten any death threats yet. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't start. No, please. Anyway. Uh. Well, we, we, may, we may get some after tonight's show. You never know. Possibly. I doubt it. Um, we're harmless. I, I, don't, uh, I don't think the heavy duty Tesla fans really listen to us anyway. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, so that's what's coming up. But first, uh, let's talk about what we're driving. And uh, since it's an EV heavy show, I mean, why don't you why don't you start us off? All right. So I spent the last week with the uh, Chevy Bolt, um, which is uh, GM's uh, new um, long range, afford- more or less affordable uh, electric vehicle. Uh, Bolt went on sale in California and Oregon last December, uh, and it's been gradually spreading across the country. And it's now available nationwide <clears throat> in all 50 states. And uh, it's it's the uh, first car with a, a 200 mile electric driving range uh, and a net price of uh just under thirty thousand dollars so that means that you know the base the base price on the bolt um is thirty seven uh thirty seven thousand like four ninety nine or something you know so with the seventy five hundred dollar federal tax credit you know it comes just shy of thirty grand 
Um, and that's, that's for the base model. And then the loaded premier model, which is what I drove, uh, goes for like 41. Uh, so that's still, you know, about 32,000 after the federal tax credits. And depending on where you live, uh, what state you live in, you might be eligible for some, some additional state and local incentives as well. Like in California, I think you can get another five grand off of that. And, uh, various incentives across the country. But anyway, that's you can look that up if if you're interested in the bolt. Um, but the the car itself, and I think we talked about this a little bit in January after I did, went on the uh, the media drive program in California. Um, and you know I I'm really impressed with this car. I mean it's it is a really good car. Uh, you know, and having spent a week with it now, I'm even more impressed than I was after I drove it in California. One of the things that I wanted to do. Well, first of all, you know, let me talk a little bit more about the car. You know, what, uh, GM has taken a very different approach with the design of this car compared to what Tesla is doing with the Model 3 that's uh, supposedly going into production at the end of, or I guess, well, actually be tomorrow as we're recording this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I told somebody recently this week, we, we were talking about this, and I was like, you know, EVs are, it was actually because of the Volvo announcement, which we'll talk about later as well. But, you know, EVs are definitely coming. And Tesla, while they they have done uh, innovation very well, I suggested that he check out the Bolt because it's a real car made by a real automaker, which means, you know, they're good at bending the metal and putting it together and having it stay together and, and you know, doing that in a consistent fashion. That can provide support. Right. Um, so... Yeah, the 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 bolt kind of looks like a high top sneaker. It's definitely not as as pretty as any Tesla, although the, I mean the Model X is not really all that pretty anyway, but Yeah, I mean, you know, the Model 3 is a reasonably attract sleek looking sedan, um but the problem is uh in this market it's a sedan and sedan sales, <laughs> car sales in general have been tanking for the past year and a half. Uh, you know, midsize and compact sedans are down about 10% or more uh, this year compared to 2016, you know, and where the, the market is all running to is crossovers. And we'll, we'll get a little more into that later on as well uh, with the story about Kia and Hyundai. But, you know, so GM has you know, opted to um, make the, the Bolt, you know, a more upright hatchback sedan or hatchback and they're actually marketing it as a crossover. You know, they, they actually list it as part of the Chevrolet crossover family, along with the tracks and the Equinox and the Traverse. Um, yeah. Calling it a crossover is a stretch, but, you know, granted, it does have, you know, the higher hit point, the higher seating position that you typically get in a crossover. Um and, you know, it's it's actually really comfortable to ride in. One of the complaints that I've heard from some people is the fact that, you know, the interior you know, is all hard plastics. And yes, it is. But, you know, one of GM's goals, you know, in designing this car, you know, in addition to keeping the cost down, was also to try to keep the weight down. Um, you know, the Bolt only weighs about, uh, I think, a little over 3,500 pounds. I think it's like 3,550, um, which, you know, for a car, you know, where a thousand pounds of the mass is the battery pack. Um, that's actually pretty impressive. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't know yet how much the Model 3 is going to weigh, but for comparison purposes, a Model S uh, weighs somewhere, you know, depending on this, on which battery pack size, you get anywhere from 46 to 4,800 pounds. Um, so it's well over a thousand pounds more. Uh, 
and you know it doesn't really offer you know at least in the like in the 75 kilowatt hour version you don't get any more range out of that and in fact uh you actually have more passenger volume in the bolt than you do in the model s which is a substantially larger car um you know because it's it's packaged better so right uh, so that the bolt is smaller but much more space efficient because it has that i don't know that i'd call it a crossover an suv though it just to me it's like a hatch yeah it's it's a tall hatch um, I mean, you know, like I said, for for GM for GM's marketing purposes, they're calling it a crossover, but it's a tall hatch. Think of it more along the lines of uh, a Honda Fit, you know, a little bit bigger than a Honda Fit, um, but you know, it's it's really roomy inside. You know, f- five adults sitting in there, you know, as long as the three in the back seat aren't too broad shouldered, uh, is not a problem at all. There's plenty of leg room, plenty of headroom, and even decent shoulder room, you know, for three across in the back seat. So, you know, this is a, a very impressive car. And, you know, getting back to the, the hard plastic surfaces inside, you know, in the, in the cabin. Yes, they're hard plastics, but GM has done some really nice stuff with the texturing on there. And so, you know, you touch it, you know, it's, it's clearly hard surfaces, not soft touch materials, but it looks good. It doesn't look cheap, uh, which is important. Yeah. And, you know, they're not the only car out there with hard plastics. Look at the door panels of uh, even a Mustang. Um you know, there's there's hard plastic in other cars. Yeah, there, I mean, lots of cars with hard plastics. And, you know, the key is in, in making it so it doesn't look cheap like a lot of cars of the 1980s and 1990s. Yeah. So you know, I, think, I think GM's done an admirable job here with that. Um, and, you know, it's a fun car to drive. It's got 200 horsepower from the electric motor and 268, I think, foot pounds of torque. You know, which comes from zero RPM. So this thing can run zero to 60 in about six and a half seconds. Yeah, that doesn't suck. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, that's that's plenty. I mean, it's, you know, if the if the if the Model 3 is in fa- base form is faster at all, it won't be by much than this. You know, it's it's not going to be, you know, much, you know, much more than about do much better than about six seconds zero to 60 from what we've heard. So, you know, you've got lots of room for passengers inside this thing. Lots of room for cargo. Uh, there's, I think, 17 cubic feet of cargo space behind the, the rear seat. And then if you fold the back seats down, it's a 60-40 folding rear seat, uh, as is typical. You've got, you know, tons more room in there, you know, to put all kinds of gear. You know, we, we went out to the lake this weekend, uh, you know, and, you know, packed in all kinds of stuff in there. So there's, there's plenty of room, you know, for your active lifestyle in this thing. Did you have any, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, what was your question? I was just, did you experience any range anxiety with it? The last time I had. That's what I was just going to get into. Okay. Cause like the last time I had an electric vehicle and it was a, it was a, um, a leaf, but I had it out on the highway and the range just dropped really, really quick to the point where I was, I actually got off onto back roads so that I could do some more regen so that I, I, I didn't feel like I was going to make it uh, round trip if I just stuck to the highway. That is absolutely not a problem with the Bolt. Um, you know, the, the official EPA rating for the range is 238 miles. And one of the one of the interesting things that they've done with this, you know, the, because of the, the rules for doing the certification tests, um, they have to run it in drive mode with the transmission and drive. Um, and so... 
in drive, the car is calibrated to give you regen braking when you lift off the accelerator. That's similar to what you get from engine braking in a, in a conventional internal combustion car. So you get, you know, mild deceleration, you know, without hitting the brakes. Um, and then, you know, a little bit of creeping when you, when you lift off from a, from a stop. Um, when you put it, when you put the shifter in low mode, that's when things get interesting. So I, I ran this car through uh, a 40 mile uh, test loop around Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor area where I, where I live, you know, which was a combination of urban, suburban, and a bit of highway driving as well. And uh, I did it, I did it one day, um, you know, starting with a full charge uh, and did it in drive. And then I did it in low and that, you know, basically the same conditions, same time of day for, for both runs. And what I found was that in, uh, in low or sorry, in drive, uh, I averaged about 4.7 miles per kilowatt hour, uh, which is really good efficiency, uh, for, for an EV. Um, but then when I put it in low mode, low gives you much stronger regenerative braking. So basically you can, that, that gives you, that allows you to do one pedal driving. So you, except for panic brake stops, you'll never really have to use the brake pedal. You can just, you know, modulate the accelerator to slow down and speed up. Uh, much like uh, with the, um, the the BMW i3 is very similar. Uh, so you can basically drive it without ever touching the brake. And in fact, I think, you know, over the, the 40 mile test loop, uh, you know, around, around Ipsy and Ann Arbor, uh, I got, I think I, you know, hit, hit the brake pedal maybe three times. That's such a like that's such a pleasing way to drive too. Like it sounds weird until you do it. Yeah, and when you get used to it, it's actually really good, especially in traffic. It's great because you're not constantly moving your foot back and forth between the brake and the accelerator. You just, you know, modulate one pedal and it's it's very relaxing. Yeah, and one of the things I I dislike about all automatics is the creep. So, yeah. When you put it in that high regen mode, it it creeps a lot less if if like none at all. It's it's just much more pleasant. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and that, that mode will actually bring the car to a complete stop. So even, you know, when you're coming up to an intersection, you just lift off and coast down and the car will come to a stop even without hitting the brake pedal. And it'll, it'll sit there at the intersection without, you know, without going anywhere. That's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. So in drive, I got 4.7 miles per kilowatt hour, which with a 60 kilowatt hour pack comes out to 282 mile range. When I drove it um, in low mode, I got 5.6 miles per kilowatt hour, which comes out to 333 miles of range, which was I wasn't hyper miling this thing. I was just driving it normally. Yeah. I mean, and so like that doesn't mean that they're underrating the range. It probably means they have some headroom. And if you were to drive a more varied route or a different route, like. The, the number would change a bit, but that's a really good test to show sort of the, the variance between already good efficiency and even better in that that uh, the low mode. I, I just I wish that they would get us to the point where they can switch the modes around. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd, I'd love to have them do the, you know, the, the heavy regen as the default mode. Um, and that's what BMW actually does on the i3. Um, you know, but I think they're. They're still trying to appeal to consumers that aren't used to EVs, you know, so they're trying to make it as, feel as normal as possible. Well, you know, I mean, there's just tear the Band-Aid off. Just, you know what? There's nothing's going to get us used to it like just complete immersion. 
No, just, you're you're absolutely right. <laughs> so you know if you're if you're at all interested in an EV, yeah, you know, and you're you're looking for a new car, and you don't feel like waiting, who knows how long for a Model Three, and 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 you know if like most Americans, you're actually not really interested in a car, but you'd rather have something like a crossover with a big big opening in the back to put all your stuff from the estate sales that you hit on the weekends or from Ikea or whatever else, um, or your bikes or, uh, your mountain bikes and all, you know, uh, paddle boards and whatever you can handle all that stuff with, with a bolt. I mean, you know, it, it's a, I think it's actually a, a better fit for the typical modern American driving lifestyle than, uh, than the model three is. Uh, but you know, granted I haven't driven the model three, uh, yeah, and nobody has. <laughs> but this one one thing, this one advantage, big advantage, this does have is it's got it does have support for uh, Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, which you won't get in a Tesla. So this is where this is where I find I have to explain to a lot of folks when this comes up because Tesla has a really well cultivated image and. Um, you know, a, there. It's well cultivated image. Yeah, they have a good brand. Uh, they they do actually, you know, do innovative stuff and they they stretch and sometimes they miss their goals. What I I wish that they did a little better or without, uh, you know, with a little bit more humility was actually focus on the core like car building. Have you ever and we can get into this shortly, but I like, have you ever sort of like looked at panel gaps on a Tesla, for instance? Yes. Yeah. The, so, the, the, you know, frankly, you know, the, the fit and finish and quality on Tesla's is not up to par with their contemporary competitors. Yeah. Uh, that's what kind of leaves me a little bit like I'm not that terribly impressed with that for that price. And I understand that Chevrolet and General Motors, you know, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with both of those brands. But, it, you know, from what I've seen coming out of them, you know, lately, even for the last 10 years, has been uh, really consistent quality. Uh, you know, they they know how to bolt the stuff together. They know how to, to form steel and uh, do the consistent panel gaps and the good paint quality. And, you know, going through... Going through the bankruptcy was good for them, and that's you know they they did step it up, uh, and that's it, it. Really, it does show when you put it next to a car, you know, that's just feels more like sort of crafted, but not in not in a that's not a complimentary way to say that it feels sort of like handmade, you know? Yeah, hand hand each one handcrafted to unique specifications <laughs> by mistake. Um, <laughs> Yeah. You know, so, it, it, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. You know, I have tremendous respect for what Tesla has accomplished. I mean, you know, if it were not for Tesla, cars like the Bolt and the Leaf, uh, which, you know, and the second generation Leaf, uh, they announced uh, since we last talked that uh, that's going to debut in September. So that's coming as well, um, as well as, you know, all these other automakers that are going electric. That would not have been happening at the pace it is now were not for, for Tesla. Um, you know, so they, they deserve absolute credit for that. I mean, they, they've done, they've accomplished a lot, but you know, the, the reality is the cars they're building, you know, uh, really 
in many respects are just not up to snuff, you know, with modern customer expectations, you know, and the cars they've been selling so far have, you know, it's been early adopters that, you know, want to support the, the vision of Tesla that have largely been buying those. And, you know, now comes the real test once they actually start shipping the Model 3, whether they can meet the needs of the average consumer. Um, and we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come back to Tesla on this show. But <laughs> um, so I did I finished up my week with the Mazda CX-9 and we actually had a question about it um, this week. And one of, of the questions. Um, yeah. And, and one of the, one of the questions was something that I actually noticed and I, I guess it's consistent with them is the, the air conditioner is really weak and that's sort of one of the, uh, I noticed kind of two demerits with it. Um, and that weak AC performance was the biggest demerit because over the 4th of July holiday, we used it here. We had, you know, kids and the dog and it's a great family car. Uh, it's, it's comfortable. This was the signature. So it had the Napa leather and it was, you know, very nicely done inside. Um, and the three rows of seats is great. And it's just overall, it's, it's well thought out. It does drive nicely. Um, but the, you know, operating the seats, they feel, I don't know. They, they feel like not, not flimsy, but almost like gritty. You know, I, I, it's hard to, it doesn't instill confidence that it's going to hold up. And and that's maybe just my prejudice there that I was expecting it to just operate maybe like stuff does in a Honda, <laughs> you know, where it's, you know, it's it that it's, it's also, you know, the little things have all been considered and you pull like one lever and the, it just, it works, it works smoothly and it, it doesn't feel like you've got to, you know, almost break it. I was, and it was really the third row that, that felt, a little bit like I had to manhandle it more than I should have to make it fold down. So, well, that's, that's actually a, a pretty common issue in most of the, I hesitate to use the word smaller, but you know, like not like the really big yeah. um, three row utilities, you know, m most of the, the closer to midsize three row utilities like the, you know, things like the Kia Sorento and, and the um, Hyundai Santa Fe and, you know, and the CX nine, you know, they're on the smaller end of the, the three row segment. And, you know, most of them, you know, are, you know, you do have to kind of mess around to try and get the, the uh, third row seats folded. Yeah. And they, like, I feel really picky um, pointing that out, but, but that, the, and the, and the AC performance was a killer. Uh, just we had it, you know, out and around and it was in the eighties here. It wasn't really all that humid and it, it just, it could not deal with it. Um, oh, that's too bad. Yeah. I was really surprised by that. I, I know it has a pretty large interior, um, for, for, you know, the, it's got the two and a half liter engine with the, the turbo on it. So I, it's something about a driver it. that tends to generate a lot of hot air. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I had the kids, they were the ones doing all the talking. Um, no, but it's, that really surprised me. I was like, why, what is, what is up with this? I thought maybe it was the particular one that I had, but it turns out that I've heard, you know, that, that complaint is, is more consistent. So that's something they'll have to look at. And it's probably, you know, some adjustments and, and some running changes they can make to, to tweak that. But if you live in a place where, solid air conditioning performance is important 
that's going to be an issue, especially when you load it up with people, you know, like you get a hot car on a hot day. It's been sitting in the, the parking lot in the sun and everybody wants to pile in after a soccer. And do you have um, a, a big panoramic sunroof too? It did have a sunroof. Um, yeah, it was probably because it's a signature. So it was, uh, you know, the largest, you know, the nicest sunroof they offer, which doesn't help either with solar loading. Um but yeah, most cars do do okay with the AC. Like even the Mitsubishi Mirage, the AC works okay. So it's just well, kind of like what it's worth on the seats. The the seats in my twenty seven year old Mazda are holding up just fine. There you go, and you have plenty of air conditioning. You just put the top down. Exactly. Um, lots of headroom too. Um, but the you know the 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 CX nine is definitely worth a look because it it just it it does ride and handle and just drive really really nicely like everything was meant to operate together what um, about the um the other question uh had about the stitching i guess you know did you, uh some yeah uh, teamer asked about the stitch work on the cx9 i uh, heard the the napa leather is high quality but it's poorly stitched together for some reason did you notice any issues with that i didn't really notice any anything with that i, I have to admit you know I, I don't examine the seat stitching all that closely on a regular basis when we get press cars. Um, but it didn't appear like there was any sort of like large seams or anything. So I'd be interested to know more specifically sort of what, what that complaint is about. Uh, Cause everything there, like this, you know, the seats were nicely trimmed. They had, you know, contrasting colors on them and, and, uh, you know, maybe it's the lower trim seats. Cause the, only the signature I believe comes with the Napa leather. So, um, that was one thing that I kind of wished I had gotten something less than signature, maybe even like touring or one of the lower trims just to see what it's, what it's like. Cause it's really pretty in, in, um, signature trim. It has rosewood and, and, uh, really nice leather and all the best of everything. They had up display and it's, it's nice. It's, it's one of those things. Like if you wanted an X five, but you didn't really want to spend the money you can get most of what an x5 does for forty five thousand dollars yeah it's not bad you know um so it's it's competitive and it's it's nice to see that that mazda can really breathe some life into that segment because the last cx9 was sort of clunky on its feet um it, it was good but it it was a three row forward edge so right um yeah i i hope they hope they fix the ac the engine could use a little bit, you know, a little bit more oomph. Um, it's not that it ran out of breath or anything. It was just like one of those like, oh, oh, we're I'm flooring it now. OK, <laughs> and that's that's it. And it's, you know, numbers wise, it's decent. It's like 310 pound feet of torque and, you know, 2.5 liters. It never really felt flat footed or anything. It was just like, oh, that's all we've got. OK, I'll be patient. And, and it's certainly not slow. It just. I think we're spoiled. I think I'm spoiled. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's a given, I think, you know, especially yeah. in, in this business. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, you, you mentioned, you know, that it'd be interesting to try out some of the lo- lesser trim levels. And that's, you know, that is one of the issues, you know, when we're, we're driving these press loaners all the time is they, the car makers do tend to focus on, you know, getting the higher trim levels uh, into the media's hands, uh, you know, cause they want them to check out all the different features um, you know, and put the best foot forward with the cars, but, um, you know, that's not necessarily, I mean, you know, although that's, it's a reasonably high percentage of the vehicles that they sell, it's not the the highest share. I mean, that, you know, typically, you know, you, 
you know, for most vehicles these days, you typically have, you know, more or less three different trim levels. You have your, your, your basic trims, the mid-level trims, and then, you know, some premium trims. And the basic ones usually account for about 10% of sales. And the, the medium, the mid-level trims, you know, usually are somewhere around, you know, 50 to 65% of all sales. And then the, the premium trims, you know, are somewhere around 20 to 30% of sales. Um, so, you know, it's a good percentage of it, but that's not, it's not the majority of sales. That's, it's the mid-level ones that you, that it'd be nice to be able to check those out more often and, and see, uh, um, what they're like, you know, what they're like to live with. <clears throat> yeah. It, it, it could really color your opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, early, earlier this year, you know, each of us got a chance to drive the Honda Civic Sport hatchback sport, you know, which is actually, you know, the sport it's the sport, but it's based on the, the base trim level of the civic. Uh, so it doesn't have the upgraded uh, display audio system. And, you know, a lot of the other features that you get, if you go up to an EX or a touring, um, so it's it's actually pretty close to a base trim level. So, you know, it was it was interesting to experience that and and see what it's like, you know, for somebody, you know, that's coming in closer to the entry price point for one of these vehicles. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's an interesting play when they do it, too. When It, it tells you a lot about, I think, how confident an automaker is uh, in what it's offering uh, and, and the story they want to tell and, uh, sort of where they understand, uh, their buyers are, you know, and, and that's, I say that cause this week I have a, a Subaru Impreza and I don't, I don't have much to say about it yet. We'll talk about it again next week. Um, but it's, it's a 2.5 I premium. It's not, it's not fully loaded. It's, it's got some, some features on it, but it's really interesting that, to me that they'd put that in the fleet. Cause it's, it's like, Oh, you don't want to, I mean, and I'm sure there's, there's some around with the leather and stuff like that, but this is a, a, a sort of like that mid-level car, like you said, you know, uh, it gives you a different perspective on it. Cause it's, 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 this is how regular people live. I've got that, um, the William Shatner, Ben folds thing going in my head. Like I want to live like regular people <laughs> or like normal people, you know, like, and that's like, that's what I think of when I drive this, drive this car. And it, it like, it gives you a different impression than something like if it were like an, a WRX or, right. you know, just the, the, the limited trim, whatever Subaru's highest trim is, which would have been easy for them to dump in the fleet, make all the press cars like that. And they'd be a lot more charming in that way. Cause you know, when you get in a nice car, you go, Oh, this is nice. And then, you know, if, if you're driving it for a week and you're not paying for it, y y it warps your perception of the sticker price, too. When you go, oh, it's 32. That's not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, OK, but you know, this is and, 24. And, and, you know, that's that's what, you know, the car makers want people to think about you know, and say, hey, you know, this is actually a really nice car for, you know, for this price point. Um, and actually, you know, to give credit to Mazda, you know, they have had, you know, um, mid-level and base models of, of some of their vehicles in the here in the Detroit fleet uh, at various times. Like, you know, I've had, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the Mazda three uh, with uh, the, the base two liter engine, I think it's the touring trim or may, or maybe it's just a three I, you know, close, closer to the base trim level. And, you know, even, you know, with, the, with current, particularly with Mazda, you know, with their current lineup, you know, um, they do a really nice job of trimming out the interiors, even on the base trim levels. They don't, they don't look 
cut rate compared to the the premium trim levels. They still they they still have really nice materials and fit and finish, you know, even on the the, the most affordable models. Yeah. And those are the things that buyers care about. Those are the things that I wind up getting asked about. And, you know, if I've only been in the premium ones, I'm going to say, oh, it's a nice car when it's fully loaded. I have no idea what a base model's like. I don't know how much they take out. Um, you know, so I don't want to belabor the point. So we should we should get onto the news. But um, yeah, we, we've had some some more basic cars and just, just keep, you know what? Just keep sending us the cars. Just send us the cars. We'll talk about them. Everybody's happy. And we'll, we'll, we'll tell you what we think, you know, whether yeah. we like them or not. <laughs> They'll stop sending cars. <laughs> no, you know, I think, you know, as, as long as, as long as we can back up our opinions and, you know, if, if we're, if we're honest about the things that we like and the things that we don't like, and, you know, we can provide a rationale for why we didn't like it. You know, they're, they're fine with that, you know? Yeah. Well, so it's, I've, I've, let's put it this way. I've, I've done lots of negative reviews of cars over the years and, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't stopped anybody, it, you know, because I, I always try to be, you know, honest about what I think and, and why I think, you know, and I mean, frankly, you know, there's in modern cars, you know, there's very, there's very few really bad cars anymore. And we've talked about this before, right? you know, but when there are things that are annoying, you know, I, I point them out because people should know about that. If they're considering that car, they should be aware that this is something that might be an annoyance to them. And if it's not something that they're concerned about, then they can go past it and, and you know, take, you know, take into account the, the good features that they like. Yeah. Well, and that's I mean, that that's the shopping process. It's nice to hear from somebody who has a bit more perspective. And that's one of the things that we get as we get experience with so many different cars on a regular basis is you, you get a little bit more uh, exposure um, than if you're just like shopping, taking a marathon weekend and torturing yourself. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it's an interesting sort of user experience approach. Uh, and, and I do this when we're designing, um, you know, websites and, and things like that is you, you have to put yourself in the, the user's shoes and say, okay, so when a person comes to this website, they do these things, they're presented with this palette of choices, or do we want to present them with fewer choices and, and really, you know, control the outcomes, which, you know, that whole discipline transfers very nicely to the human machine interface of, of automobiles. And I know that this is stuff that the automakers are studying and constantly refining. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's sort of, you know, what, I like to to think about when I'm driving these cars this is like, well, what is the average driver going to do? What is the average person going to, to appreciate or not appreciate? And I find that I disagree sometimes, like a lot of the safety stuff that's really proliferated with, you know, the lane of uh, departure warnings and avoidance and collision, you know, forward uh, braking and all that stuff. I think consumers really appreciate that and I get aggravated by it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they appreciate some of it and some of it they are less appreciative of, you know, and it, a lot of it depends on the implementation. You, know, you, you mentioned the HMI, you know, um, you know, and the, the way that uh, car makers give the feedback, you know, give feedback to the drivers, um, you know, particularly with lane keeping systems, you know, is something that is somewhat controversial and, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what is the right solution to that. And I think GM actually has a, a very unique solution, um, that I think actually works is one of my favorite, you know, in that at least on some of their higher end cars, um, when the system detects that you're drifting out of the lane, 
it will actually vibrate the seat. It'll give you haptic feedback through the seat cushion. And so if you're drifting off to the left, you'll, you'll feel a vibration in your left thigh. And if you're drifting off to the right, it'll be in your right thigh. And then if it's actually detecting a, a potential collision, uh, it actually vibrates the whole seat. You know, so it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a very, um, it's a good way to give an alert that you'll notice, but that isn't, annoying like some of the audible alerts that you get in, in a lot of cars you know the beeping when you're starting to drift out of the lane you know or you know if you're just going around a curve and you know maybe clipping the apex a little bit too tight uh, you know those the the constant beeping you get from those that's a real annoyance and so car makers are still trying to work out what are the best solutions for that and this is something that as we transition into the Autom you know, more highly automated cars of the future is, is going to be an ongoing issue. Um, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what are the best HMI solutions for all of this. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, the Mazda had a really nice uh, solution for that, too. It actually you could turn on and off the beeping and it had a, a vibration that you could also adjust or that was sort of lower or more vigorous through the steering wheel. So like that's they're figuring that kind of stuff out and so that the, the drivers understand what it's warning you about and it's just not the car beeping and blinking at you in, in uh disorienting fashion so they're they're getting there and you know while we're on the subject of safe cars we should pivot to our topic uh, or one of our topics um in a superbly well-timed <laughs> uh bit of pr uh release volvo has said that they are going uh to embrace electrification uh, after 2019 fully which contrary to what you may have heard does not mean that every volvo after 2019 will be an ev what it means is that wait, it will wait, wait you mean when they put out a press release with the headline volvo cars to go all electric that doesn't actually mean that they're going all electric. Well, I mean, the headline is a nice bit of headline writing. <laughs> um, I made sure to read the press release before I wrote my take on it for Forbes, which was like, well, wait, 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 wait. First of all, they've got cars in the pipeline that are going to come out between now and 2019, and they're going to be what they are. Um they're already planned. They're too far in the development cycle to make any big changes. Uh, so they're going to, you know, there are going to be some, some gas engine stuff out there, uh, at least in the interim. The next step is that you're going to see them, uh, you know, because they're saying go electrification, not all EV, right? So they're all going to have some kind of electric assist. You're going to see light hybrids or mild hybrids, you know, with a belt alternator starter set up in a, you know, a, a larger but not very large battery uh, to sort of give you a little bit of oomph. And those are going to replace diesels, from what I understand. Uh, the twin engine stuff is going to stick around. And then sort of the ultimate end game is full electrification. And it appears that their scalable product architecture and compact modular architecture, uh, the two platforms that Volvo has, have both been designed to accommodate full electrification with, uh, you know, different size battery packs and, you know, also being a scalable platform so that they can be SUVs or wagons or sedans and, um, hatchbacks and stuff. So, uh, it's, it's going to take a while. I really don't think you're going to see 
the death of the gasoline engine in Volvos anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be gas engines in Volvos for many, many years to come. And, you know, they, they've said that by 2021, they're going to have five battery electric models, three under the Volvo brand. Uh, and then two more under the Polestar brand, which is, you know, their their performance brand, which is now going to be uh, electrified performance brand. Um, and then in addition to that, all our other cars are going to have at least mild hybridization. So between 19 and 21, you know, they'll convert everything over. So it at least has at a, at a minimum a 48 volt mild hybrid system, um, which, you know, those will have, you know, you mentioned a larger battery. They'll probably have. Uh, somewhere around a, a half kilowatt hour lithium ion battery right. in there. Um, and, well, and that's, that's easier to do. That kind of capacity is easier to do at the higher voltage. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, and, you know, just for reference, you know, uh, most strong hybrids, you know, cars like the Prius and Ford Fusion and, and most other, you know, high voltage hybrids are typically somewhere around 1.2 to 1.4 kilowatt hour batteries. So, you know, this is about, uh, you know, a half, you know, a little less than half the size of what you typically get in one of those. So, you know, it'll give you some electric assist. It'll give you the ability to do more aggressive um, uh, auto stop start on the engine. So instead of waiting till the car comes to a complete stop to shut off the engine, it'll shut down the engine at maybe five to eight miles per hour. Um, you know, if you're if you're decelerating uh, and then, you know, it'll let, it'll launch you on electricity till you get going, you know, rolling two or three miles an hour and then start the engine. And what that does, in addition to saving fuel, it also uh, because everything's already in motion, um, it actually you get smoother starts and stops. So the stop start functionality actually becomes a lot more transparent when you do it that way. Um, so you don't feel the, the shuddering you get sometimes, uh, you know, when the car is standing still and, you know, restarts, you know, sometimes you get some shaking of the engine. You, you don't feel that as much when the car is already moving uh, and you're you're using the moment, some of the momentum of the car moving to help start the engine. So, um, you know, it'll feel it'll feel smoother. It'll get probably about 10 to 15 percent better fuel economy. Um, and as you said, you know, it'll probably. Um, that they've said that, you know, at first, uh, they'll have mild hybrids on both gas and diesel engines, but I think, you know, uh, probably by the early 2020s, you know, as they get to the next generation of cars, it'll, you know, they'll, they'll drop the diesel engines and just go with the gas only. And then also the plug-in hybrids that they have today on the XC90 and S90. So, yeah, I mean, you had a take that you wrote up about this, uh, for Navigant Research as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, any any particular insight that are, we've we've missed here that you want to sort of add to the conversation? Well, the, the, the thing that, um, you know, it, this this um, strategy actually makes a lot of sense for Volvo um, because, you know, unlike, you know, they're, they're one of the smaller automakers. They sold a little over half a million cars last year um, and they, you know, once they uh, bring out the new 40 series, you know, they will basically only have two vehicle platforms and one engine family across their entire lineup. You know, they'll have multiple body styles on each one. You know, so in the 90 series, you got the XC90 SUV, the S90 sedan, the V90 wagon. Uh, you'll have the 60 series, which is on that same scalable product architecture you mentioned. And then you'll have the 40 series on the smaller compact modular architecture, which that will also be shared with uh, Geely's other new brand, uh, Lincoln Co., that they're launching in Europe. 
um, which is focused on uh, car sharing and mobility services. But uh, for Volvo, at least, you know, they've only got two vehicle platforms and um, one engine family. Uh, you know, the, the gas and diesel engines are all part of one common engine family. And it's a set of four cylinder engines across all of these vehicles, you know, at various power points, from, you know, with naturally aspirated turbo and turbo plus supercharging. So, you know, they really only have to design, do, do you know, one design for a 48 volt system that they can basically apply to all these cars fairly easily. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, for say, for example, GM or Ford or, or Volkswagen, where they've got, you know, still have, you know, eight or nine different, uh, platforms and, uh, and, you know, many different engine families. Um, it's, it's a lot easier for Volvo to, to manage this transition, uh, especially in such a short time frame. Yeah. And I think that that was one of the points that I made uh, or, you know, one of the thoughts that I had when I was writing it up when we initially had the um, the announcement was that not everybody else could do this just because Volvo's they're not a full line manufacturer. They're small enough that they can they can make that change. And it doesn't really because their cars are on that small amount of architecture to begin with. It, It doesn't really hurt quite as much and it it quickly gets them through this they're going to have that middle period it gets them through that uh and on to when they actually do have full electrification you know they're i would not expect volvo to be developing another internal combustion engine at, at in you know then <laughs> the next yeah, few years you know? cur- their current one is, is you know it's a fairly new design it only launched a couple of years ago with the xc90 and yeah, you know, you're right. They probably won't. They they may never design a new internal combustion engine family. They, right. You know, by the time that this one has run its course, this this current two liter four cylinder design, um, they, you know, they may be fully electric at that point. Right. And then they can just wind it down, which is a little bit sad because you know Swedish metallurgy has been uh, just a glorious thing and knowing how long Volvo four cylinder engines just stay in production, yeah, <laughs> you know, like they made their, their first four cylinder, like it started off as like the B 14 in the early fifties. And that took us all the way up. They finally put that out of production in like 98. Um, when it was the B two thirty. Yeah. Um, and even their five cylinder stuff. And the, the, so that was a modular engine family. It was a four five and, and six. Um, those have lasted quite a while yeah. as well. You know, they've been around since the launch of the 850. Uh, so yeah, Volvo tends to engineer its engines for the long term. I don't anticipate that they have any plans to create a new engine family, uh, before they no longer need engines and then they can put their energies and their fortunes into, uh, other areas of automaking, you know, batteries and, and motors. So we may actually see you know, the cars spike in cost a little bit. That was my other thought was, are we seeing Volvo pushing people toward more expensive cars by not giving them the, you know, gas only option? But then uh, I don't know, a mild hybrid doesn't strike me as something that's tremendously more expensive to. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's one of the advantages to the 48 volt systems is you can do a 48 volt mild hybrid for uh, between 800 and a thousand dollars cost premium. So yes, it's not that much. That's almost, that may be less expensive than diesel. 
it is. Uh, with the with the after treatment system. So yeah, it's it's about half the cost of incremental cost of going from gas to diesel. Right. So either they eat some of the cost and they keep it the same price as the gas only cars or they increase the price a little bit and you know if you were thinking about buying a diesel the mile hybrid could be cheaper than diesel that's all speculation that's up in the air until and, you know the, the thing to keep in mind you know volvo is a premium brand uh and they're they are um you know as a, you know like most of the premium brands they will have an easier time um absorbing that cost uh you know their, their customers will be more likely to absorb that cost premium when they buy a, a car than somebody, you know, at a lower price point, you know, that, you know, somebody who's spending 50, $60,000 on a car, you know, is not going to flinch as much at adding an extra 800 to $1,000 to the price as someone who's buying a $20,000 car. Right. I mean, it just adds a little bit to the payment. Well, whatever. Just, yeah. just throw it in, throw in the floor mats. Um, you know, it, the other thing too, is, you know, a lot of the other premium brands um, are, going in the same direction, perhaps not as aggressively as Volvo is, but, you know, for example, recently, you know, the Oliver Bloom, the CEO of Porsche uh, said he expects that half of Porsche's production will be electric by 2023. Well, that's yeah. Um, Michael Taylor, who also writes for Forbes, did a a more thorough sort of evaluation of this. And one of the things he, he pointed out was that Volvo was definitely making good PR out of it, but oh, yeah. they're, they're not doing anything that their contemporaries at Mercedes or uh, PSA or BMW aren't doing. Uh, all of the European automakers are pushing really hard to embrace electrification because there's regulations that go in place very soon and they all want to get ahead of it. Exactly. And, you know, one, one other factor for Volvo uh, pushing them in this direction is that they're also pushing really hard on automation, you know, going to going towards automated driving. And those systems will require more electrical power, uh, you know, to power the the compute platforms and the sensors and the actuators and everything else. So, you know, for, uh, you know, level three and four automated driving, especially level four, um, you really need to have um at a minimum 48 volt electrical systems in order to properly supply all of the the hardware that you need for that capability. So these are the numbers and the alphanumerics we're going to need to, to get familiar with going forward. You've got the levels of autonomous driving, right? Level three, level four, level five. That's one thing to understand. The next thing to understand is uh, the the 48 volt electrical systems. That's something that's going to be more and more uh, consistent. Uh, And then we've got uh, the EU7 emissions targets, which is is driving a lot of this. And that puts the CO2 emissions at 95 grams per kilometer. Um, None of the European automakers think they can hit that without going to some sort of electrified solution so those are really going to be some motivating factors where it used to be just sort of you know fuel economy and horsepower and torque now we've got these these things we've got the systems to support we've got the autonomous driving that is going to be a thing and at varying levels so just understanding what they what they mean and then um emissions targets and i don't know what North American emissions targets are going to be, I think, you know, no, no one knows. Right. I mean, we, we've got them. Are they still tightening toward the 54 mile per gallon cafe 
target that had been well that's the plan but you know keep in mind that uh, a couple of months ago you know shortly after taking office the uh the current uh administration decided that they were going to go back and revisit the uh reopen the midterm review on the uh corporate average fuel economy standards so at least through 2021 they're locked in uh and 2021 they have to be at uh, i think about 42 miles per gallon or so and then the 2022 through 2025 uh, standards are what they were evaluating under the uh, the midterm review that was going on last year. And that was supposed to be a two year process. So that was that wasn't supposed to conclude until the end of this year in right. 2017. But they decided that they had enough data, um, you know, towards the end of last year that they would go ahead and make the decision to just lock in the, the standards where they were. Um, the new administration decided that they needed to go back and revisit that decision. Um, and so beyond 2021, it's unclear right now what is going to happen here in the U.S. That's an obfuscatory technique to say, well, we need more research. That is a delay tactic. It annoys me. Um I mean, we're not we're not going to hit that 2021 number, right? Our cafe numbers are not. Nobody, nobody's up at oh, like yeah. 40 something. Yeah, they'll they'll hit those. They're, they're they're already on track to hit those. Really? Oh yeah. I thought corporate average fuel economy was nowhere near forty well, something. You got to keep in mind, you know, what these numbers actually mean. So there's um, the the numbers that are used for cafe, and then there's the numbers that are that show up on the labels when you buy a new car, and those are two very different numbers. the The way the cafe standards are calculated, they do. Um, they use the same the original same two original drive cycles the uh, the um, FTP um, and I think USO seven uh, that they've been using since the early nineteen seventies when they did the original uh, so the 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 city and and highway drive cycles that they started with in right. the seventies and they apply a correction factor yeah well those continue to be used for the cafe numbers so you have to keep incrementally improving on those two as part of cafe. So that number, that's the, where the 54, you know, the 40 plus miles per gallon up to 54 comes in. It's based on those two drive cycles. And, you know, anybody who's, you know, older than, you know, 25 or 30 probably remembers, you know, when the fuel economy numbers on new cars were wildly overstated. Oh yeah. And it was, <laughs> that was based on, on those numbers. Uh, back from, since 2008, they switched for the label values. They switched to, um, a five cycle test. So you have those two original cycles plus three additional types of drive cycles. And so that gives significantly more realistic um, numbers. They're still not perfect, but they're a lot closer to what you can expect to get in the real world. Um, and, you know, then there's additional factors that come in there, like they get credits for doing auto stop start and, and various other things. Um, and, those are the numbers. Those adjusted numbers are what goes on the fuel economy label that you see on the, the window sticker. Um, and so that's there's usually about a 30 percent difference between that and the numbers that are used for the cafe calculations. So when we're at at 40 miles per gallon cafe, the window sticker is going to be you know closer to about 29 or 30. And 54 is going to be, you know, in the 34 or 35 mile per gallon range. 
nonsense. All of it's nonsense. Let's let's talk about something else. Okay. (laughs) So let's let's talk about crashing stuff. Yeah, crashing stuff. And if you're Tesla, you don't like it. Your response is, hey, no, guys, we crash fine. You're the problem, which is what Tesla said to the IIHS. Um, Yeah. So I'm completely glossing over the story, but that's my take on it. Yeah. So the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, you know, they um, they do a bunch of crash tests and and various other evaluations on new vehicles um, every year uh, that go above and beyond what is mandated by federal motor vehicle safety standards. So the Department of Transportation, NHTSA, does their new car assessment program and they test they get new vehicles and they test uh, all the stuff that's mandated by law. So you have things like the 40 mile per hour barrier crash test and, you know, ver- various other tests, you know, side impact test and, and the rear impact test, all those things that are mandated in the law um, that, you know, you can't sell a new vehicle unless you meet all those requirements. And, you know, for the last several years, the Tesla model S is, you know, ace those easily got you know gotten five star ratings on the ncap on the new car assessment program right there's people out there who think that it's like the safest car ever made right and you know tesla keeps reminding us that they're the safest car ever made because they get the highest scores on ncap (laughs) which is not the same thing as being the safest car ever made well you know the, the the thing about any kind of standardized test like this is that they never test every possible scenario yeah well yeah there's that but yeah they test certain specific criteria and you know if you can do well on that you know just like you know standardized school testing if you can do well on the test you pass and you move on to the next grade right it's like the kid but it's like the kid who got i mean you know anything right and that's exactly what i was gonna say it's like so back in my day sat's topped out at 1600 and it's like acing all the tests is like getting a 1600 on your sat but you have no common sense and the 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 holy grail is the car that does both that that aces the tests and performs in in real world situations and i'm not saying that the tesla you know doesn't have good crash protection and good performance uh in in real life situations and, but and they, they absolutely do i mean you know we've seen plenty of you know photos of teslas that have been crashed you know where people you know in severe crashes where people have walked away but it all depends on the kind of impact that you have right it happens to be an impact that that matches what was tested by uh dot you're golden but if it's a slightly different kind of impact, the results can be dramatically different. Well, and we saw this when they switched to the small overlap test, the cars that managed like everybody flunked that except for, I think, just a couple. Uh, and the, the cars that did well were the cars that had a very careful, very deliberate safety design from the get go. And they weren't even new designs. You know, the Volvo XC90 was one of the few cars that passed the small overlap test and I think got a good rating or, or uh, at least didn't flunk it um, when that test was introduced. So everybody was getting five stars, you know, uh, with the frontal crash ratings and, and side crash ratings. And they introduced this new test that's different. And all of a sudden you see which cars are designed to test well and which cars are actually designed to perform well. And those are two different things. Um, and it seems like Tesla's having kind of a consistency problem. Uh, somewhat. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the small overlap test, you know, for those not familiar with it, basically, you know, what it is instead of crashing the whole car straight into a wall, 
what they do in the small overlap test is they uh, you have 25% of the width of the car hits the barrier. So one, one quarter of the, you know, the width from the outer edge of the car and hits, hits a solid barrier uh, at 40 miles an hour. And, you know, that's totally, you know, a totally realistic scenario. I mean, especially, you know, if you're talking about cars, um, you know, that are coming at each other on a, on a divided or on an undivided road, you know, one car drifts across the center line, you know, you have a glancing blow on, on the other car. It's a, it's a totally realistic scenario, but uh, the thing is, you know, the, if the cars are designed only for the federal motor vehicle safety standards, what they typically have is the, if you look at the structure underneath the body panels, you know, there's usually a couple of big, long rails that run down the front, you know, that support the bumper. And so all that energy goes through those, those frame rails and, you know, gets dissipated through the structure of the car. But if you happen to hit just outside of that frame rail, you know, which is a totally plausible scenario. And it's estimated that roughly a quarter of all crashes, you know, are comparable to the small overlap uh, test. And, you know, I think something like 22% of all traffic fatalities, uh, you know, occupant fatalities um, are in that type of crash. You know, so that's a, that's a very realistic test. Um, and so if you crash it just outside of those frame rails, what tends to happen is that whole structure on the outside and the front suspension and the wheel tends to get compressed, you know, into the, the firewall and, you know, often, you know, intrudes into the passenger compartment, into the driver's footwell and, you know, can cause a lot of damage. And, you know, for Tesla, you know, they've now tested the Model S twice on this test. Once they did it earlier this year as part of a group of EVs that they tested. And then they did it again uh, more recently as part of a group of large sedans. And in both cases, the, the car didn't fail on the small overlap test, but when IHS does their, does their grades on these, you know, the cars get either poor, acceptable, or good. Uh, those are the three grades that they get. And the Model S only got an acceptable. It wasn't a poor, so it's still, you know, you're, you're not going to get necessarily get killed in this type of crash, but uh, it's not, you know, it's, it wasn't, you know, it didn't reach the threshold for the best grade, and thus they didn't get a top safety pick uh, from IHS for that car. Right, and Tesla's answer to that was um, not not contrition. <laughs> uh, no, not not even remotely. In fact, uh, their response to IHS was IHS and dozens of other. Uh, private industry groups around the world have methods and motivations that suit their own subjective purposes. Yes, they, they in fact do. And IHS's purpose is to promote vehicle safety and, and minimize um, the chance of people getting killed in crashes. That's what they have always done. They're a, they're a nonprofit organization. It's funded by the insurance industry. And, you know, what they do is research on automotive safety. You know, and, you know, they they do all kinds of testing, you know, to evaluate cars, to do independent testing. Um, and, you know, besides crash tests, they also test things like um, yeah, headlights and um, uh, the automatic emergency braking system. So they're starting to get into testing ADAS systems. So, you know, they do a lot of good work and a lot of the research that they have done over the years has fed into upgrading the the federal regulations. So, you know, things like the roof crush standards and, you know, some of the other um, deformable barrier tests that are now part of, you know, federal regulations, you know, things like that, you know, came out of work that was done by organizations like IHS. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and, and it all honestly, it traces back to uh, what Ralph Nader had done. Yeah. Um, and, and even before that, it, it was it was the armed forces, I believe it was the army who noticed they lost more soldiers to car accidents around bases than they combat. Yeah. Uh, and so they said, hey, what's up here? And and so. Again, it's, you know, Ralph Nader was an actuary in uh, the insurance industry and in the insurance industry is the ones who have to pay when somebody is is hurt or they there's just a loss on the property, whether or not anybody's hurt. Uh, so they yeah, their their motivation is to really per- see how these cars actually perform um, and how they protect the occupants, because it's very expensive for them to have to pay people for getting hurt or killed in car accidents. So that that's their interest. And I understand there's a business side to it. Yeah, I mean, and but, you know, they, they obviously have a business interest. But, you know, as uh, a, a side benefit of that is that it also helps prevent or helps, you know, fewer people get killed in car crashes. Yeah. And, you know, typically, you know, tradition, you know, typically what has happened in the past, if, you know, when they introduce a new test or, you know, they test a new vehicle, if the vehicle doesn't do well, you know, the car makers usually acknowledge that they say, okay, we will go back and take a look at that. And they often come back, you know, a year or sometimes less than that, a year or two later, you know, with an upgraded model, you know, and they go back and retest it and, you know, hopefully get better results. And car makers like to, um, they like to promote the safety of their vehicles. And, you know, when they do get these top safety picks from IHS, you know, they, they promote that in their marketing. So, you know, they have an incentive, you know, to try and make these vehicles as safe as possible. You know, and, and an example, just a couple of years ago on this small offset test, um, when Ford launched the aluminum F-150, um, they had slightly different front structures on the crew cab and the, the regular and extended cab versions. And the, the crew cab actually did better on the small offset test. And that was actually what IHS initially tested. You know, it got a good rating on that one. But when they went back later and tested the other models, they found that they didn't do as well because there was a different structure there. And, you know, within a few months after that test, Ford introduced a running change on the all the other F-150s and they upgraded the structure on those. So instead of complaining about what IHS did, they went and made the vehicles better. You know, so instead of Tesla whining about, you know, IHS's motives, you know, they should just say, okay, we're going to go back and and reevaluate this and, and, and make this better. But, you know, Tesla's probably one of the very few, if not the only automakers that can get away with this kind of reaction as well. Um, a lot of their owners and fans will be willing to give them a pass and to make excuses, uh, for something that honestly being inconsistent and also just not, not, not sort of wanting to make the cars as safe as they can be or as safe as they're supposed to be like, that's, that's not okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's like I've, I've I've I struggled to find better words than that for it. But it's just like that's that's not something you want to push back on like that. It helps you to build the car the way it was designed anyway. Like it's it's been designed to pass that test. So why is it not passing it? There's an issue there. You, that's something that you want to go back. GM and Ford and, and Volkswagen, you know, they they couldn't sit there and say, well, no, the problem is you guys, your agenda. You guys suck. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, you know, in, 
in the past, you know, manufacturers have complained about some of the tests that IHS has done, but ultimately, you know, they ended up going back and, and changing their designs to make them perform better in those tests because they realized that people actually, you know, that, you know, these were credible tests and, and, you know, they were done professionally and, um, you know, people gave them, gave the results credence. So, yeah. you know, there, there's an incentive to, to make vehicles better. Yeah. But see, and that's the thing Like Tesla doesn't. And unfortunately in this case, it isn't something that Tesla can fix with an over the air software update. Right. Right. That seems very easy. Um, but that's, that's the part that, you know, we were talking about the bolt, like that's the part that the old line automakers do really well is they do the, the structural engineering and the assembly and the, the all of that stuff. It's, it's very sophisticated and it's very complex and it's mm-hmm. hard and it's hard to do it consistently. And the companies that everybody loves to hate are really good at it and it shows. Um, and, and, you know, Tesla, Tesla doesn't even need marketing. They don't, they don't really, they don't even put their cars in, in the press fleets uh, really. So again, like they, they can probably get away with it at least for a while, but you know, they're introducing a car that people are going to expect behaves just like you know your run-of-the-mill camry and that's going to be a real test for them and to to i don't don't think those those buyers i don't think model three buyers are going to make the same excuses or give them as much of a pass on stuff uh they're going to be shocked and surprised and and upset when the car and the automaker lets them down on something that they had assumed was exceptional with this brand that has an exceptional image and i don't need to babble about that anymore okay (laughs) so (laughs) um but yes let's let's return back to the topic of uh electrification and crossovers um and uh interestingly uh this year um both uh, both hyundai motor group mainstream brands kia and hyundai have introduced new vehicles based on the same platform, but they are very different looking vehicles. You know, Hyundai designed, um, uh, you know, a, a, v- a platform specifically for electrified vehicles that, you know, is available as a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid and a full battery electric model. And for Hyundai, they opted to uh, put a five door hatchback body style on it that, Bears a, a striking uh, resemblance in its profile uh, to uh, the Toyota Prius, uh, um, and uh, that that vehicle is on sale now as both a, a BEV and a, and a hybrid. The plug-in hybrids coming this fall, um, but their uh, sibling brand over at Kia, instead of um, that five-door that you know sloping five-door hatchback design, you know the car design like the Prius-like design, they opted to go with a crossover body style on the same platform, and mechanically the two cars are identical. The only difference is the body style, and interestingly, uh, since they went on sale earlier this year, the um, the Kia Niro is outselling the uh, the Hyundai Ioniq almost three to one. Yeah, they've sold uh, almost 13,000 Neros, probably by now 13,000 Neros and uh, just under 5,000 Ionics. So what I my first thought was like, well, didn't the Nero go on sale first? And it it turns out they both went on sale in February, which, uh, you know, points out to me that maybe Key is doing a better job of telling people about the Nero. I had somebody ask me about the Nero. 
you know, I mean, that may be part of it. And it may also be a factor of, you know, people, you know, American consumers just have a preference for crossovers right now. And that's yeah. That's so maybe it's both of those things together. It's an interesting point, uh, especially since I'm a, I, I'm I think I'm correct in saying the Ionic gets better fuel economy than the Nero. It it does by uh, uh, by about six or seven miles per gallon, you know, because it is lower, uh, has a you know, smaller frontal area, you know, less drag. Um, but, you know, even the, the Nero, uh, let's see, and it's. The most fuel efficient variant of it is uh, rated at 52 city, 49 highway and 50 miles per gallon combined. Right. So, you know, for a compact crossover to get 50 miles per gallon. Oh, it's very good. I don't I don't think too many people are going to complain about that. Right. But you could get f- almost 60, right? 55, 56 with yeah. the uh, with the Ionic. So y- you're seeing that the Nero is is very good to the point of definitely good enough. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> for most people and and, and, and truthfully you know the difference in terms of how much you actually spend on fuel once, once you get past about 35 miles per gallon the difference between 50 and 60 is almost negligible in terms of how much fuel you're actually going to save but it's very expensive to get from 50 to 60 in terms yes. of engineering and uh the just the actual car itself um it, it, but i i do think you're right i think it's the nero is the product that's shaped like people want <laughs> right yeah. now it's packaging and and it's uh i mean i prefer it uh just because i think it looks cool and i've seen them out in the street like i don't mind the ionic but it reminds me of a prius and i not that i hate the prius but i i don't know i'm not sure where i'm going with this just just <laughs> say like the nero is just it's different enough it's neat it's intriguing yeah it is and uh it'll it'll be interesting to watch you know as they you know, towards the end of the year and into the beginning of next year as they launch the the plug-in hybrid and, and then the uh, battery electric version of this to see how it does because, um, you know, the, especially the uh, the battery electric, you know, assuming they use the, the same battery pack that's going, that's in the battery version of the Ionic, you know, that'll be, you know, about 124 mile range. Uh, it's a 28 uh, kilowatt hour pack, um, you know, that's you know that'll be the first crossover electric crossover with that kind of range yeah i mean i think uh, that more of a true crossover not like the bolt yeah and and i think that they're they made a really solid play to say you know we're we're going to go in this they they found a little bit of space right a little bit of like greenfield space that nobody had a crossover that was this efficient Mm-hmm. And uh, so they went for it and it, it seems to be paying off. And their their goal is actually relatively modest. They just want to sell 36,000 of them uh, per year or this year. That I I don't know that they're going to have a problem doing that. I, I mean, let's see. They've been on sale since February. Oh, yeah, they're probably not going to get there. Well, <laughs> like they uh, might get uh, to as, 30. As, as they launched the, the plug-in version, um, you know, they 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 they'll probably hit thirty. I wouldn't be surprised if they hit thirty. You know, yeah, because they they probably had limited availability. You know, in the first couple of months. Um, you know, as they ramp up and have have more vehicles available, they'll probably sell more. So, um, they they may well hit their target. You think they'll hit thirty uh, six? I wouldn't rule that's, it out yet. 
That's ambitious. I mean, the other thing too is is Kia overall outselling Hyundai now? Uh, I think they I are. Don't think so. Not yet. I, See, okay. so far, year to date, 2017. Uh, they're, they're yeah, they're actually down a bit because they're they're still kind of car heavy. Uh, so they're they're at 296 thousand for the year, and Hyundai uh, total is uh, where's the total? Uh, here we go. 336,000. So yeah. Um, Hyundai is still a little bit ahead. They're ahead by about 40,000 units uh, yeah. compared to, uh, compared to uh, Kia. Uh, but, and then another 10,000, if you add in Genesis. Wow. They sell that many Genesis. Yeah. So far 10,000 this year. Genesis is Genesis. Anyway, Genesis, <laughs> Genesis, is that beer from here. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right uh well i mean the, the nero i haven't gotten one in the fleet yet have you had a chance to drive one i've not driven the nero i drove the you drove the ionic uh, the ionic uh, a couple months ago on a local drive here and i've actually got an ionic hybrid coming next week and i've got a nero scheduled in august i'd be curious to see how that drives and somebody actually did ask me about it and uh i was surprised that he saw it in the dealership he went in he's, he's got an optima and he was like hey what do you think about the nero i was like wow what do you know about the Nero? <laughs> I had just written it up for something. Um, so they, they got it out into market and it's, it's getting noticed. So, uh, you know, the rest of this year and next year will be, be telling to see what that does. Yep. Um, all right, well, let's wrap up with one more topic. The, uh, the Hespin rally. Yeah. So, um, the, uh, Patrick Hespin, uh, was a former, uh, automotive PR guy, uh, here in the Detroit area. He was, uh, with, I first met him when he was at Ford, um, and he spent some time at Audi and, uh, he finished up his career, um, at, uh, Chrysler, uh, before unfortunately succumbing to cancer, uh, way too young, uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, yeah. So he was, uh, well, well loved and, uh, respected, uh, member of the automotive community here in the Detroit area. And, um, so, uh, let's see in 2015, uh, uh, his widow and a bunch of his friends organized the first Hespin rally. And we drove from, uh, here in, in uh, Birmingham, Michigan to Cleveland, uh, his hometown, uh, in a bunch of cars and had lunch down there and raised, uh, about $4,000, I think for the, um, Oh, what is it? The, I can never remember the, the name of this. It's the uh, Colangio Carcinoma Foundation. Uh, basically, it's a very rare form of bile duct cancer. And uh, so uh, we raised, raised a bunch of money for that. Uh, and they're doing another Hespin rally coming up on August 6th. So you're, if you're in uh, the Southeast Michigan area and uh, you're interested in hanging out with a bunch of uh, journalists and PR automotive PR people and uh, friends of Patrick uh, and just uh, seeing some cool cars and you want to drive with us, uh, feel free to join us. You can go to hespinrally.com and register. And all they ask is that uh, you make a donation of at least $50 to uh, the foundation. And um, then you're free to join us for a road rally that starts at uh, Pastiner's AutoZone Hobbies in Birmingham and ends up at Belle Isle uh, in Detroit. And we'll have a meandering route uh, to get there. We won't just be running down Woodward Avenue. Um, so uh, look forward to you know, 
meeting you if uh, I'll be there uh, with. You're gonna have uh, the Miata, yeah. We'll have the Miata there. Excellent. Uh, so you know, come on out and join us and uh, help us raise some money. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was young. He was. He's younger than me. Yeah, he was only thirty-seven. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, he was. He was very well uh, loved and respected in this area. Well, yeah, get, get definitely uh, get out there and, and, you know, are you going to are you going to be solo or are you going to have the dog in the car? Or is... um, uh, I, either the dog or my wife. I'm not sure. We'll see if, if she wants to. Uh, so, so you can't give ride along. So that's what I was going to say. You can't, you know, uh, uh, we should auction that off. We should be like, you know, one lucky, you know, raise ride, ride, ride along in my Miata. Yeah. The person who writes the biggest check to the charity gets to ride along with you in the Miata. There we go. I well, think that that's yeah, it's philanthropy. Rosie, Rosie wouldn't mind that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, we touched on a couple of questions earlier. Uh, do we have any any others? Uh, let's see. Uh, we talked about the stitching and the CX nine. Uh, we did have something else. Uh, there was one oh, face Polestar. Post. Somebody asked uh, any thoughts about the announced plans for Polestar. Uh, um, mentioned that very briefly, but uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I mean, I, th I think that they're they're like the Skunk Works and and um, going full electric is going to give them the performance that they've been known for. So I'm not sure how they've, they feel about that change, but I'm sure they're glad they still have jobs. So yeah. And you still got to make the car ride and handle. So. That's right. Regardless of what kind of propulsion system you've got. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Brooke asked uh, that we make sure that we mention which engine uh, size and horsepower are in the cars we test. And I, I think we, I hope that. we did that this week. If not, we'll CX nine has a 2.5 liter four cylinder turbo, uh, with a 310 horsepower, I think 310 pound feet of torque. Oh, okay. 280 uh, something horsepower. Yeah. And, uh, the, uh, the, the bolt is a 200 horsepower, um, electric motor and, uh, you got a two five boxer naturally aspirated boxer in the Impreza. Uh, yes. Uh, mm, is it two five or it might be the two. I forget. Uh, it's one of the FAs, one of the new flat fours, which I say new because it's, you know, in the last five years, <laughs> it's been new. Um, I, it might be the 2.5. Uh, so let's see. I think, yeah, I think it is. Facebook. I think that's about it. Uh, there might've been something that came in by email. Uh, let's see. Oh no, we talked about that. That's from last week. So, yeah, I think we're about done. All right. I did see some more uh, reviews. I, I at least saw one on uh, Facebook. So thank you for that. Uh, you know, again, throw us some iTunes reviews. That helps us show up for other people who are looking for good podcasts. And I know that we're a little bit different from all the other automotive podcasts, which I hope works in our favor and makes it uh, interesting to listen to. Um, but yeah, please throw us some reviews. Feel free to give us some feedback and uh, ask us to uh, clarify any points we may have uh, glossed over, such as <laughs> assuming everybody knows the engines we're talking about all the time in cars that they can Not just we would ever know. gloss over anything. Right. Like Karnak. Um, so, yeah, uh, please let us know what's on your mind and, and we'll address it uh, next time. All right. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money now on new siding from LP SmartSide at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP SmartSide today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save 